The following resource is by CBC Mokopani. For more resources like this, check out our website at www.christbaptistmokopani.com. Friends, 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll spend our time in the first 11 verses, really, talking about the gospel of the resurrection. So friends, this morning we have a a five-point outline. Get comfortable to our guests that aren't used to it. Um, There are cushions in the back. I'm kidding. I'm going to try not to take as much time as possible, but I do want to talk about what's important. You see, on Friday we spoke about the gospel of death's death. Gospel means good news. The good news of death dying. Death dies in Christ who overcomes it. This is why Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, where is this thing? Where is your victory? So, having spoken about that, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about our resurrection. The the resurrection we have in Christ. That's the context. I want you to understand that as we begin. This is what will happen to every believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be resurrected. You will receive a new body. You see, all of us who love Christ will be risen from the dead. Now, if you don't have an adequate theology on what happens when we die, you might be sitting here tempted to think, okay, so I still go to the ground, I don't know what happens, And when Christ is ready, only then am I, you know, resurrected. No, no, when we pass on from this life, we go to be with the Lord, isn't it? We are with Him. John says we are made like Him. Paul says it is in the blink of an eye that we are like Him. So don't misunderstand what we mean here. In fact, we'll be given these glorified bodies... We don't believe in, or Christians rather, let me just say that, Christians shouldn't believe in reincarnation. You don't come back. You don't come back as an uncle or an aunt or, you know, you don't come back as an animal. You don't come back as a bug or a fish. You don't come back. If that's the reason why you don't eat certain things, then I want to invite you to what Jesus said to Peter. That's not the reason you don't eat certain things. Then Romans 14. I continue. It's not an endless cycle of life where you come back, you come back, you come back. Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed for man to die once and then judgment. There's no coming back. There's no trying to fix your past mistakes. As Christians, we shouldn't believe in annihilation either. Annihilation is the doctrine that says, when you die, it's finished. It's gone. Oh, yeah, yeah, Christians, they go to heaven. But if you weren't a Christian, you're done. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that after this life, those who are dead and not alive in Christ go to a place of torment. That's why we're so serious about preaching the gospel. That's why we're so serious about reaching the unreached. Because we don't want people to go there. We don't want people to go to an eternal lake of fire and sulfur. Scripture says, 
That's the place where the worm does not die. It's a place of suffering. Don't be wrong and don't be misled in thinking that that's the place where Satan sits on his throne because it's not. That's where he too suffers the wrath of God. Here's the scary thing about hell. I know it's early. Here's the scary thing about hell is the presence of God is there as well. But it's not His love. It's not His mercy. It's not His compassion. It's not His comfort. It is His justice. It is His wrath put on display. But that's such an unloving God. No, no, no. This is a loving God. If you think God is unloving because of this, then your parents are unloving. Then you are unloving. Because that's what you do in discipline, isn't it? You say, well, I don't want to discipline like that. Look at the world. And I can tell you, the world looks the way it does because parents don't love their children. They don't discipline their children. My dear friends, God is a God of love. And He shows this love in a great deal that He gives His only Son. That's how much God loves. You know what we do? Ah, don't believe in that anyway. It's a fairy tale. It's a fiction. And you, you, you know what? You have the right to believe that. You do. Here's the thing. I'm going to try and persuade you to not believe that. Because it's real. This is real. We're dealing with real people. We're dealing with a true and living God. Scripture tells us that we will be forever like Christ. We have an eternal spirit. We will live in a resurrected, glorified, eternal body. That's the Christian's hope. All things are made new, including us. But here's the thing. Our resurrection is based on Christ's resurrection. On nothing else. It is based on the resurrection of Christ. Because Jesus is resurrected, we have the guarantee of resurrection. Because of His resurrection. Scripture says, Colossians 1, He is the first fruits of those who slept. He's not the first born again. I know that that's a theology being taught, and I have no idea how people came up with that. He's the first born again believer. Please don't say that. That is so far from the truth, man. It's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. Should we change? Well, I'm behind Sorry. It's fine, we can keep going. Until it eventually dies. One, two, my day still. Let's just keep going. I believe I have a big enough chest to try and project. All right, let's keep going. I want to start off by just reading our text that you understand 
where I am coming from and where we will go together. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an, un, an, an, an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. My dear friends, there are five testimonies or witnesses in the scripture we're going to look at that give us the comfort, that give us the assurance we will be resurrected as He, Christ, is resurrected. The first testimony is the testimony of the church. The church of Christ exists because of this very act. There would be no church if Jesus wasn't resurrected. Do you understand that? There would be no gathering. The 70 would have disbanded. The 120 would have never happened. The 500 being together. They would disband. But here's the evidence. The church exists 2,000 years later on a wing and a prayer? No, 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 no. On the historical fact and evidence that they saw Christ appear before their very eyes. Paul says to the Corinthian church, by the way, this is about 20 years after Christ was resurrected. Paul says to these believers, you received the gospel. You have heard the gospel, whether it was from me or anyone else, you have heard the gospel message. Now what does the gospel have to do with the resurrection? The gospel involves the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. If we don't speak about Christ's death and resurrection, we're not speaking about the gospel. It's not a complete message. It's not a good news. The gospel involves the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, you already understand this. You have heard the gospel. And so you understand that Christ has been risen. And so he tells the church. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, verse 12. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How are you doubting this? You have experienced it. Verse 1. You have heard the gospel. You received the gospel. In fact, he says, 
in which you now stand. You are standing in the message of the gospel. Not only have you heard it, but you believe this message. You received it, and now you hold on to it. See, if this wasn't true of the church, then they wouldn't be holding on. We wouldn't be here, my dear friends. There's many who appeared interested in Christ, but there's also those, as we just read, who turned their back. They didn't want to follow. They didn't want to stick around. But for those who hold fast, it is proof that salvation is real. Because these people believed, they received, they stood and they held firm to the gospel of their salvation. So I want to say by virtue, if you are a Christian, then you need to believe in an actual, physical, bodily, literal resurrection. You have to believe that that happened. Jesus was physically raised. It's not as some teach that Christ was a spirit that possessed the man Jesus. And when the man Jesus went to the cross, the spirit of Christ left him. That's not true. That is not true. Listen, Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Christ means Messiah. The anointed one. This is who he is. You see, you shouldn't have a problem believing your own resurrection if you believe in the resurrection of Christ. I get that we doubt our salvation. And I get that we doubt our salvation very often. We're overwhelmed. We get entangled in sin. And so we doubt if we're even saved. Here's the thing. I want to comfort you by saying this. If we look to the historical fact of what happened 2,000 years ago, that Christ was resurrected, He was raised, and He is now seated at the Father. We say that happened. We can agree that that happened. Then why do we not have that same assurance about our own salvation? Because the same power that resurrected Christ, the same power that made Him new, is the power that lives in you and I as a believer. It's the same power. It's, it's not, you know, turned down just a little bit because you can't handle that power. No, no, Romans 5 says, this is the perfect love of God that has been poured out into your hearts. And that's evidenced through the Holy Spirit. Don't doubt your salvation if you believe in the resurrection. If you believe in the resurrection, then you should believe in your salvation. That's what Paul says to these believers. He says, in fact, you are standing firm because of this knowledge. Because you understand this truth. This is what the gospel says. Romans 10 verse 9 through 10. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is. You have to believe the resurrection. You can't come to church and say, I, I believe in this, I just don't believe in the resurrection. Then you don't believe. That's the implication. Then you don't believe. And this is so unique to Christianity. It's so unique to the witness of the church. Here's an example. Even the original accounts of Buddha never ascribed to him any form of resurrection. There's no account. 
that says Buddha was resurrected. In the earliest accounts of the death of Buddha indicated that he died. And this is the theology that he taught, right? He taught this. When you die, there's utter passing away into which nothing ever remains. Annihilism. You die. It's vach. Muhammad died on 8 June 632 AD at Medina. There is and never has been any indication by any Muslim of a resurrected Muhammad. It's not there. This is why the testimony of the church is so unique. We are saved by the fact that we believe in a resurrected Christ. We as the church give testimony. We give witness to this fact. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen? Listen. The Quran, if you want an outside example, testifies that Christ was resurrected. Yet they believe He has to come back and die. We say, no, no, no. He's resurrected to never ever die again. And when He returns, those of us still walking around here will be made like Him. So, I mean, if you, if you were doubting the Bible, I'm just saying. But you shouldn't. Second witness is this. Scripture. Scripture gives testimony. Verse 3 and 4, Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. How? In accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures. What Scripture? The New Testament? Can't be. It can't be. The Gospels are written around the same time this is being written. In fact, Mark is written, but Mark's the earliest recording. So, how are we going to go about this? It's not the New Testament. So what's Paul referring to? Paul has to be referring to the Old Testament. You see, that's the greatest facts of the Gospel. The death and the resurrection of Christ. The greatest fact. And here it is in the Old Testament. It is in the Old Testament. I don't understand how some people say the Old Testament has no more value. We, know, we don't need it anymore. Unhinge the Old Testament. No, no, no. The New Testament's built on the foundation of the law and the prophets. Luke 24, 25 gives us some context. Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus. He comes to two men. He says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Then beginning with who? Moses. And with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in the Scriptures. When Jesus was resurrected, no gospel had been written yet. There's no story of, of what happened. This is literally still taking place. 
The accounts aren't written yet. So Jesus could have either referred to direct prophecy, which he, uh, he did, and some of it is typology. I, I believe Jesus could have started in Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, because that's a typology. Abraham, take your one and only son and go kill him. Uh, okay? What happens? God intervenes. The angel of the Lord appears and intervenes. Perhaps he could have gone to Psalm 22, which described the details of the crucifixion. The very words Jesus said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could have gone to Isaiah 53. We've read this on Friday. We read of how the Lamb is sacrificed for sinners. I want us just to consider a few of these verses to show you that the Old Testament is pointing to Christ and to the T, man. Isaiah 53, verse 9 through 11. It describes the death of Jesus as well as the resurrection of Jesus as being part of God's will. Verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. What does that do? That confirms Jesus was buried. Verse 10, second part of verse 10. And he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see. How shall he see if he's dead? Oh wait, he's resurrected. That's how he sees. Verse 11. It tells us that the servant's death and resurrection justifies many as righteous. That Jesus dying makes us righteous. There's two more. Jonah 1, 17, Hosea 6, 1 and 2. These two verses, or the, the context of these, tell us that the resurrection not only takes place, but it takes place on the third day. Wow. That is, cannot be a coincidence. Listen. We know the story of Jonah. We know that he is a prophet called by God to speak to an unholy people, an ungodly people. He didn't want to do that, right? So what happens? Big fish comes and swallows him. Right? That happens. You can't deny that. You say, oh, but what kind of fish? Can't be a whale, because apparently a whale can't swallow something like that. Can't be this shark, because this shark... I've heard those arguments. What does Scripture say? What swallowed him? A big fish. A big fish. Alright, let's leave it there. Whatever big fish it was, it was a big fish that swallowed him. Point is this. There he sat. Three days, three nights. Just sat there. Contemplating what he had done. Now, why is that significant? Jonah's experience in this fish parallels David, King David's prophecy in Psalm 16, verse 10. The prophecy that the Messiah will be in the grave. Now, in the book of Jonah, Jonah acts as a representative of Israel. He's, he's buried in the belly of the fish. But in three days, he will be resurrected. Do you follow the logic? This implies 
that the resurrection of God of God's people is his kindness it is his mercy upon them now this logic is confirmed by Hosea 6 sorry I don't want to sound like a scholar I'm just trying to show you and connect the dots Hosea 6 1 and 2 explicitly says the following for he has torn us that he may heal us and he has struck us down and he will bind us up after two days he will revive us on the third day he will rise us up that we may live before him no if you were here when we did the minor prophet series you will know that Hosea's message was to the northern kingdom that the northern kingdom of Israel was about to go into exile for what reason their disobedience their sin toward God their hardness towards God so that's the context these are a people going into exile and this is the promise I will revive you on the third day I will resurrect you now the connection is this Hosea connects the Messiah to God's people and God's people to the Messiah they both Israel and Christ were represented Israel was represented as God's son and this is what it says in three days they will be resurrected so given the connection the people's resurrection will be Christ's resurrection Christ's resurrection his resurrection is the fulfillment that there's no new covenant without this resurrection there's no new people under God without this resurrection the key thing is this just as the scriptures said in three days did Jesus rise in three days it wasn't coincidence Jesus himself said this for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish great fish so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth these connections are explicit because the scripture gives witness to the resurrection of Christ in fact it gives witness to this resurrection 700 years before it takes place let's continue there's a third testimony and this is a more common testimony this is something we can relate to verse 5 I continue and then he appeared to Peter that's actually Peter and then he appeared to the 12 then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive so 20 years later after the resurrection Paul writes this 20 years later there's still people alive that saw Christ and then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles again and last of all he appeared to who Paul all right let's follow the logic once again Paul gives us a phrase to consider before we look at the witnesses Paul says and he appeared we can actually just stop there sing a closing hymn and enjoy fellowship he appeared it's so obvious we could have just spent all our time this morning on those words and he appeared what's the best evidence that you could have seen the risen Christ the fact that he appears hello he actually appeared Paul doesn't 
mention Jesus appearing to the men on the road to Emmaus. He doesn't mention the women Jesus appeared to beforehand. But he goes directly to the apostolic witness. The witness of the apostles. Remember, the, post, the apostles were chosen to initiate, to kind of begin the church. They were called for this specific task. So Jesus appears to these, and Paul appear, uh, appeals to this appearance. He says, this is most probably the most credible eyewitness accounts, is to appear to the twelve. Why? Jesus has spent three years with the twelve. The twelve, some had scattered and came back. But the twelve were there when they saw Christ on the cross. They had to be there, isn't it? We can make arguments, but that's part of the apostolic qualification. You have to see the resurrected Christ. So, he appears to Peter, firstly, Paul says. That's so gracious. I mean, that kind of, like, it saddens me because Peter denies him three times, just as he said. Peter, you will deny me. Ah, oh, come on, man. I won't do that. Boom. He did it. Feels ashamed. Christ appears to him firstly. Christ, it's just so special to me that Christ appears to him. Then it says, he appeared to the twelve, which was the official title. But at this point, there's only eleven. Why? Judas betrayed Christ. Judas hung himself. It was a brutal, like a horrible death. It was gross. He's not there anymore. He appears to the twelve. Why is that important? Because the apostles will now go from this place and they will preach the gospel of the resurrected Christ. Now they had to replace Judas. And they did that by adding Matthias. Remember I said, you have to be an eyewitness. Guess what? Matthias saw the risen Christ. After this, Christ makes an appearance to more than 500 at one time. Meaning there's a gathering and Jesus appears there. And they all see that. Now if you say, perhaps it was hallucination when Peter saw him. Maybe with the twelve. I mean it's possible. The twelve are sitting in a room and they might have eaten something. Maybe they drank too much. They're depressed. So now they hallucinate and they see the Spirit of Christ. How do you trick 500 people? It's a bit harder. Not having the same technology, not having the same medicines, how do you trick 500 people one time? Again, it tells us this is fact. You can't trick so many people. Paul says, hey listen, there are others that have seen that are still alive. You can go ask them. They'll tell you. They'll tell you. Then he adds verse 7, James. Now, if you know, there were two James apostles. There were two. The son of Zebedee um, and James the son of Alphaeus, right? But I believe this is linked to James, the brother of Jesus. I believe this is James, the brother of Jesus. Now, why would this be significant? Why appearing to James? What significance does that have? 
This is what the gospel says according to John verse 7. His brothers didn't believe in him. His own family, Christ their family by the way, all half brothers and sisters. He's born without, you know, he's born by the Holy Spirit. But he had siblings. Guess what? His siblings didn't believe him. When we go back to Mark, I think it's Mark chapter 3, they called him crazy. All his younger siblings, remember Jesus is the oldest, they're like, that guy's crazy. We don't want to know him. He's saying all these weird things. Now he appears to his brother, James, who didn't believe him. And guess what comes from this? James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. He becomes the, the one who organizes the Jerusalem council. That is such an important position for someone to be in. And guess what? The person who sits at the top can testify of the resurrected Christ. And remember, his testimony is not, oh yeah, I grew up with Jesus. Yeah, he was great. No, no, he, I grew up with Jesus and I think he's mad in the head until he appeared to me. Until that happened, I believed. A wonderful testimony of conversion. Um, he appears to the twelve again. I think this time he appeared to the twelve. This is that 40-day period when Jesus instructed the apostles before he was ascended how to go about. So the disciples, 500 brothers, other credible witnesses to the resurrection must be reliable. It has to be reliable. Listen, how do so many people, how can so many people keep the same story unless it happened exactly the same? He appeared to them at different times, to different people. On the road to Emmaus, when he left the two, what happened? They questioned, Is, surely that was him. We missed it. That was him. Can you believe it? We saw him. How do all these people keep the same story? And 2,000 years later, the story hasn't changed. Because it really happened, as they say, and as Scripture says, it happened. There's a, a fourth testimony, and that's Paul's very own testimony. Paul wasn't around when that happened, right? He says this, verse 8, Last of all, as to one un untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's within me. Paul's testimony to the resurrection is very, very unique. Because he sees the resurrected Christ after his ascension Christ has gone up to be with the Father the glorified Christ is no longer walking the earth right he has ascended so he doesn't make an appearance to Paul as he did to the other witnesses doesn't just show up at the door or walk through the wall he appears to him in a 
way unlike the others. And Paul says it happened to one who is born out of due time, meaning out of the ordinary. He calls himself kind of like a, a miscarriage, like he shouldn't be in the picture. I shouldn't be there. What does he mean? He's out of place. He's the one who persecuted the church. He's the one that wanted to destroy the church and Christ appears to him. So now you don't just have followers of Christ who give witness to the testimony, but an enemy, a former enemy, who was hostile, who was literally part of the killing of a deacon in the church on his way to persecute more Christians, Christ appears to him. This is what we can say about Paul. He was a humble man, and he often referred to himself as a worthless piece of flesh. That's what he says again. I am unworthy. I shouldn't be here. I'm the least of all. But he saw Christ. He saw Christ, and according to verse 10, but by the grace of God, he also now becomes a witness of the resurrected Christ. There's no way Paul would make up the resurrected story if he is the enemy of the church. Something has to happen for someone like this to change and be humbled. To speak entirely different of himself. Remember, what does Paul tell the churches when he writes to them? If there's boasting, I should be the one to boast. I'm from the correct tribe. I'm most elegant. I know the languages. I know the law. I know the prophets. I'm well learned. If anyone can boast, it should be me, Paul. But here he is. <laughs> I'm worthless. I shouldn't be here. I'm a miscarriage. But by the grace of God, he appears to him. Remember, Paul was killing Christians. He was an unbeliever, a sinner. He was a Christ-hater. And he was absolutely transformed. He becomes a preacher of this risen Christ. And he had no reason to preach this if it wasn't true. Dear friends, how does the church's greatest persecutor become the church's greatest preacher the fact that the resurrected Christ appeared to him lastly we have one final witness a final testimony verse 11 Paul says whether it was I or they you know whether it was the 500 whether it was the apostles whether it was the women or the men on the road to Emmaus whoever it was so we preach, and you believed. Paul says, I preached the gospel of this resurrected Christ, and you believed it. What does that mean? Paul says, if the resurrection is made up, how, how can anyone believe if it's made up? How can there be so many eyewitness accounts that tell you exactly the same thing? Oh, but it's scripted. I mean, really? When he appeared to them at different times, he says, whether it was I or they, 
Wherever it was, you heard the message. You believe the message. Verse 12. Now if Christ was, has been preached, that He has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? So you see, there were people in the church going, no way. Nah. I hear you, but no. Can't be true. How can you say... In the church, as a uh, you know, professing believer, there is no resurrection when your faith depends on resurrection. When the evidence for the resurrection is literally what saves you. See, we have the testimony of the church, the testimony of scripture, the testimony of eyewitnesses, the testimony of Paul, and then there's this testimony of the message. The message that Christ has indeed risen. Yes, He died, but He is alive. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's His own words. I am the resurrection and the life. There is no resurrection apart from Christ. You say, but wait a minute. Lazarus was resurrected? When, when Paul preached three hours long, someone fell out the window, they were resurrected. What happened to them? They died. They were resurrected to only die again. What about the young girl? Died. Resurrected? Died. Huh. Imagine being resurrected twice. One bodily and one spiritual. That's what happened. But Christ is the only one who was resurrected and still is alive today that's because his resurrection isn't just a physical resurrection dear friends scripture tells us that he is now in a glorified body here's a lesson real quick i have some time here's a lesson real quick scripture tells us that we worship god in spirit and in truth because god is spirit right Meaning Christ is spirit. Okay. Then Christ entered the world. What do we sing? We sing it in the hymns. He took on humanity. The immortal became mortal. Alright. So now we have the hypostatic union. We have Christ, the spirit, taking on flesh. Becoming a man. He's still God. He's now the God-man. This God-man dies. This God-man is resurrected. When they see Him, how do they see Him? As a cloud? As like a spiritual thing, as a shadow? How do the eyewitness accounts explain what Christ was like when they saw Him? Come on. It's not scientific. It's His body, right? When Thomas, sadly we call him Thomas the Doubter, but when we looked at the Gospels, Thomas was the faithful one. When Jesus said, I'm going to go die, what did Thomas say? I'm coming with you. Thomas was heartbroken. That was the context. When they said to him, Thomas, we saw him. He said, no way, man. Stop kidding. I love this guy. He's dead. Jesus said, come, Thomas. Look. Behold. Feel it. Oh. Wait a minute. Christ, the God-man, you can feel him still? Yes. Christ now still bears the glorified body. 
We read the scriptures that we can still see the marks. Listen, there's a song by Casting Crowns. The only scars in heaven don't belong to you and I. Christ still bears those marks. That is the love of our Savior. He still bears those marks. So whether you choose to not believe these testimonies, and it's going to be too late. It's going to be too late for you to say, well, I want to see Him first. I want to see the marks. It's going to be too late, friends. But I tell you this, the historical, biblical, spiritual facts that all point to this says He has been risen. And that when we depend on Him, when we throw our lives on Him, we too get to take part in this life, in the resurrection. That death will have no power over us. That when we believe in Jesus, we experience the resurrection and power. That's where you and I stand as a believer right now. You who are overwhelmed. You look at the past two years and you say, life has been crazy. I've lost people. I'm not okay. You stand in the resurrected power of Christ. And Hebrews says, Christ is still working on your behalf. He is still ministering to you. He is still mediating. Yes, the, the sacrifice is finished. It's done. But His work in your heart is not done. His work in your life is not done until you, like Him, are resurrected. May that be your comfort. May that be your hope. May you stand in those promises. Let me pray. Our gracious Savior, as we reflect on this goodness, as we reflect on this hope and this life we get to share in, I pray that if there's a heart in this room that has not come to experience this good love, this sacrificial love, then may you through your spirit pierce those hearts and soften them. Soften them to know the only love that fulfills, that completes, that energizes. And for us as believers who sit here before you, May you enrich our lives once again with a reminder as we go about the mundane, the chores of everyday life, forgetting in who we stand, what promises are for us, what awaits us. May your Spirit comfort us and constantly convict us when we live a life that's contrary to what we say we believe. Our Savior, we pray this in your name. Amen.